Good morning. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for leadership on WSOU 89.5 and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. You know, this program is all about leadership, and I'm so happy to have a good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Walter Fields, who is the CEO and executive editor for NorthStarNews.com. Walter, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's always nice to be here for a friend, and it's always great to be on a college campus. Absolutely. Now, Walter, before we jump into what North Star News is all about and what you've been doing uh, with young folks, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, yourself, and, um, you know, um, how you came about to be where you are today. <laughs> <laughs> well, at, at age 54, it's been quite a long uh, road to travel, but, you know, I was born and raised um, in Hackensack. I'm a New Jersey boy. And at a very early age, I took an interest in government and politics and started attending city council meetings in Hackensack at age 12. My mother would drop me off to city hall, and I would attend city council meetings, and I'd always speak on issues that I thought were important to children and young people. Uh, the mayor at the time uh, was, I guess, impressed by the fact that this 12-year-old kid was showing up for city council meetings, and he appointed me to a city commission uh, the very next year, at age 13, I was the youngest appointee ever to a city commission, uh, the Youth Guidance Council, which oversaw city policy on youth recreation um, and other activities. Um, I also happened to be the president of my middle school student council, and during that time, challenged the school system on the basis of their school lunch program, uh, which I thought that middle school students weren't getting good lunches compared to high school students. and. We led a food strike, and students didn't buy lunch for about two or three weeks. Of course, food backed up and piled up, and we convinced the district to meet with us, the student council leadership, and they completely changed the school lunch offerings for middle school students based upon that. So, you know, early on in life, um, I felt the need to be involved. Um, I just had the good fortune of having retrieved from the LBJ uh, Presidential Library down in Texas uh, two letters that I wrote to President Johnson when I was in the third and fourth grade. Um, it's amazing because presidential libraries keep all correspondence. Uh, but the letters that I retrieved, it was interesting to read uh, my thoughts as a third grader, but the first sentence in the letter was that I understand that, you know, 20-year-olds can vote, but why can't children? So for me, it's always been a quest to be involved uh, through my college career at Morgan State University. I was a student government leader involved in um, campus protests that led to the ouster of the university president. Um, at NYU, um, I was chair of the Black Student Caucus for our Graduate School of Public um, Administration and led the fight to secure the first appointment of an African-American full-time tenured professor um, at that graduate school, which is the oldest graduate school of public administration in the country. And um, as a result of that, was appointed to um, the graduate school's diversity committee. So, you know, part of my focus in life has always been about trying to use the skills I've been given to provide some leadership um, to address social conditions, particularly when they entail conditions that are impacting upon young people. So, I mean, I've, I've known you almost, well, about 15, 16 years now when we moved to South Orange, we met. And you've always been involved to help out those who cannot help themselves. Um, this started as a child. Um, did, did, how did you get started with that? Was it something that was instilled in you by your parents? I, th I think it was my parents um, and my surrounding. I, I had the good fortune of growing up in a home that was truly church-focused. 
Um, so much of my early activity was done through the church. I was a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, the Freedom Church. Um, and uh, through church activities and also through family friends, one of our uh, family friends happened to be um, Frederick Morrow, who was the first African-American to serve in the White House um, under Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was the first uh, African-American to serve in the executive office of the president. He was from Hackensack. His sister, Nellie Parker, was the first black school teacher in Bergen County. Um, my father's, one of my father's closest friends was um, a leader in the black community in the city of Hackensack. And my brother's godfather was the first black councilman in the city of Hackensack. Mm -hmm. So it's the environment that I grew up in. Um, and I just felt, you know, a real calling. One of the things that I think affected me early on is that uh, much of my early life, uh, I think most people thought I would go into the ministry um, because my family is so church connected. And I have ministers in my family. But what I got out of the church was all the leadership stories that I read in reading the Bible. It's really interesting now when I think back about it. I would read the Bible and understand the faith-based lessons, but I would get out of it sort of the leadership lessons. And um, in looking at that, that's what has, you know, really propelled me at a very early age, you know, becoming involved in the NAACP as a young person, eventually becoming the political director for the New Jersey NAACP and sitting on the New Jersey State Conference board. Um, as well as working on political campaigns, because I think there is a real need in all communities, but particularly in the African-American community, for strong leaders who are willing to address issues, however unpopular they might be. Um, and we have a tendency now to shy away from those tough issues, because we don't want to offend anyone. Uh, we want to play it safe. We're, we're more concerned about career and personal financial security, but I really do think it's my faith that has allowed me to find some comfort in taking on issues and not being worried about the personal consequences, because in the end, I believe right is always right, and that, you know, you will be shown to be right um, if you, you know, really pursue a path toward justice. So for me, it was really a childhood of having this hammered into my head, um, and also a childhood where I saw two parents who didn't have a college education. My dad had an eighth grade education. My mom graduated from high school. But at a very early age, they told me, you're going to college. You had two people who didn't know anything about college. I had other relatives, aunts who went to college. My grandmother was actually a college graduate, a school teacher in North Carolina. But they knew it was important. And in my family, education is really stressed, as is the importance of standing up you know, for what's right. My dad was a World War II veteran. My great-great-grandfather is a Civil War veteran. He fought in the Union Army. His name is on the African-American Civil War Memorial in Washington, D.C. Uh, my brother is a U.S. Marine. Uh, one of my aunts was one of the first black women to become a Navy wave when they allowed women um, into the wave program. So sort of the leadership theme is all weaved throughout my family. And while no one stressed to me that I had to be A, B, C, or D. It was stressed to me that if you're given certain gifts, it's your responsibility to use them. And how do you characterize a good leader? Well, what are the key characteristics that you feel a good leader must have? I, th I think one of them is knowing that the cause is more important than you personally because I think oftentimes leaders who often attain a lot of 
notoriety and celebrity begin to forget that it is not their personal being that is important. It is the mission that they are there to serve. The second thing I think is, is having the ability to recognize that you can't do it on your own, that you need to be surrounded by strong people. A strong leader um, is not afraid of having strong people around him or her. And one of the examples I always use is, is Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I've had the good fortune of knowing personally most of Dr. King's aides. And what is striking about that period um, in our country's history is that while Dr. King was the visible leader of the civil rights movement, everyone he surrounded himself with was just as brilliant. But they all understood that they were there to serve a purpose. And Dr. King himself would always talk about his aides and how important they were to the work of the movement. So I think a good leader also has to have the ability to know that they can't do it by themselves. You need strong people around. And then I think the most important thing is the courage of convictions. You know, when you take a leadership position, oftentimes you are going to be put in a position where you are the only one who truly believes um, in the path that you have chosen to travel. And one of the lessons I learned as a student leader in college during a very tense situation on a college campus is that oftentimes you find yourself isolated, um, that even your friends um, who may not understand why you're taking the position you are, who don't want to be next to you because the heat is coming down to you, so they don't want it on them, um, you will find yourself isolated. But you have to have the courage of convic convictions to know that you're on the right path. Um, and I think those are the qualities that I look for when I decide to join um, any effort because I want to I make sure that I am going to put my trust and faith in someone who truly has a conviction to lead um, in a manner that I think is consistent with the mission. So the three characteristics that you talked about is one is that, you know, you have to realize that the cause is more important than you. It, it's all about what you want to achieve there. Two, you got to have a strong team. And three, you got to have the, the courage and, and, and the conviction. In today's leaders, I, I think we're missing, some of those folks are missing some of these three characteristics. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I think that's one of the problems facing our nation is that we don't have a leadership class that has risen to the occasion. And I'm not just talking about government leaders. I'm talking about leaders in the private sector, leaders in the not-for-profit sector, that we don't seem to be producing the type of individuals with strong characters who are willing to say, you know, this is right and this is the path that we need to travel. I mean, it's, it's, it's striking when you think about periods in American history and very strong leaders. Uh, one of my favorite presidents happens to be Lyndon Johnson because I think this Southerner, in the heat of the moment, showed true leadership and saved this country because Lyndon Johnson uh, decided that it was in the national interest to address civil rights. Uh, and when you think about what he had to go up against when the Democratic Party was full of Dixiecrat Southerners, he had to face down his own party and say to them, it's not about your personal beliefs. It's about our Constitution, and it's what's right. To me, that's the character of a strong, strong leader. Um, you look at Dr. King um, opposing the Vietnam War when everybody was supporting the war, when everybody told King he was wrong to come out against him, when some, when some of his own best friends mm 
spoke out against him for speaking out against the war, but he stood his ground. So when you start to look at the history of this country, when this country has risen, it's because we've had strong leaders to take us there. Abraham Lincoln, you know, Lincoln was, you know, was not supportive of equal rights for for African Americans. In fact, at one point, Lincoln said, we should just deport these people back to Africa. But in the moment when he saw what it meant to this nation in terms of the divide it was creating and that it could be either we stick with this crazy system or we lose the nation, he rose to the occasion. So I think that's what we're missing. I mean, I think there are some people out there that I can look at and I can say, well, you know, they show some of, the, some of that character. You know, you look at a person like Bill Gates um, in the private sector. You know, I don't think he's given enough credit for not just being a visionary in terms of technology, but here is a man who surrounded himself with brilliance because Bill Gates, as brilliant as Bill Gates is, Bill Gates' team is incredibly brilliant. And you see him transition now to be this philanthropist who is addressing issues around health, around the world, and education. So when I look at someone like Bill Gates, you see someone who understands that he's been given an opportunity and the way he's using it. So, you know, I think you're right. I think I think where we're deficient today is not having enough strong leaders. And 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 how do we as a society address this problem? Um, do of course we can start with the K through 12 um, teaching our young folks. I mean, I. I I don't see enough Boy Scouts anymore. I used to be a Boy Scout. Mm-hmm. And in and, 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 and scouting, you learn uh, to be respectful. You, you learn to be a leader. You learn to be resourceful. What are your thoughts in regards to that, well, especially in our African-American community? Oh, without a doubt. Well, I think, I think the first thing is we have to give children the freedom to be. One thing that I am very thankful for is that at an early age, my teachers and my parents pretty much let me be who I was. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I wasn't sort of the normal kid. I was a kid who was watching political conventions on TV in elementary school. I was a kid who was writing the president. I was a kid who wanted to go to city council meetings. But no one said to me, what are you doing that for? You should." They let me be who I was. And I think we gotta give children the freedom to express themselves. And we often cut children off at the path. You know, we, we are so prescribed to a certain regimen that we believe leads to success, including in public education, that we don't give children who have some natural abilities the opportunity to flourish in the areas that they find most interesting and the areas that they are naturally suited for. So what I think we have to start doing at a very early age is changing public education to make it more flexible. I think we lose a lot of talent because we are pushing people into areas that they shouldn't be in. So when I look at communities and I see the level of disengagement and disrepair, I often think about the people who are in their 20s and 30s, what were they doing when they were in elementary school and middle school? And we're not losing kids in high school. We're losing kids in elementary school. You know, it's the kid who, particularly for young black boys, who is boisterous, who has all this energy in class, but all of a sudden he's labeled a discipline problem because the teacher doesn't know what to do with all that energy. You know, I was a kid who hated 
to have teachers read to me because I knew how to read at an early age. And I would become agitated during when they'd have reading time and the teacher would sit everyone down. I never wanted to do that. And I would often get up and and walk to a corner and try to do something else. In fact, I have the good fortune of having all my report cards from kindergarten through. And one of them, the teacher even says, you know, he's got to work on his social skills. I didn't have to work on my social skills. I just knew what I wanted to do. And it wasn't sitting there for 30 minutes listening to you read me a book that I could read to myself. So part of this is, I think, giving young people the opportunity to lead and to, and to not, not approach it in a very paternalistic way. I think the other thing adults do is adults kill the spirit of young people. You know, we, we always want to tell them that our way is right and their way is wrong. Well, let's say 60% of the time our way is right, but we have to give kids the opportunity to show leadership. And, and that's what I learned through the black church experience because I used to grow very agitated because the black church can be very rigid in terms of, you know. And I would say, well, wait a minute, it's, it's a different era. Um, whatever you experienced in the 1940s and 1950s, that's not the case now. So, you know, what I try to do with young people and what I try to do with my own daughter, as hard as it can be at times, <laughs> Is, you know, you try to give them the space to be who they are and who they're meant to be. And I think if we do, you'll start seeing some visionary leaders rise to the surface. Right now, I think we're killing a lot of dreams. Mm. Um, let's talk about North Star News. Uh, that was launched some years ago. Um, I, I, I've seen many, if not all, of your interviews that you've done on Capitol Hill. Um, what is the objective of North Star News? Well, you know, it started out as um, it started out as a product of frustration. I was one of the original contributors when uh, NBC launched uh, MSNBC, uh, I believe in '95 or '96, and I was hired to be an on-air contributor on the cable channel as well as for MSNBC.com. Um, and it was the beginning of a number of engagements as a journalist. But sitting in the studio one day uh, with my friend and colleague, Rob Tarver, who was also a contributor, it just hit us one day as we looked around the studio and we said, you know, the world is changing. This Internet technology, remember, this is 95, 96. This is like the birth of it. Right. And uh, we just said, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could do something that really focused on the African-American community? Because we saw it coming. And I think that it really clicked um, on air when we would do segments. And at that time, they would have the contributors on air and we could read uh, the email that was coming in from people watching. And I still have all those emails and some of them very nasty. <laughs> but the interactivity of it all, mm -hmm. I said, you know, um, the African-American community is a very um, expressive community. We have an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. And this medium seems to fit our community. And that's, that's how North Star News was launched. Um, and it was launched uh, in 2002. And since that time, you know, we're a small operation, but we have been credentialed to cover, you know, Democratic National Convention, Republican National Convention, presidential inaugurations, presidential debates, you name it. Um, and what we try to do is not to... Um, leave the impression that we're trying to be CNN or NBC News. What we're really trying to just be is a source of information uh, because in the African-American community, we're, we're information starved in terms of the information that is important to us. You can turn on the evening news and see many stories, but many of them have no 
um, you know, applicability to our situation. Uh, which speaks to the Trayvon Martin situation where it took a number of months before the national media uh, picked it up. My wife is from Chicago, and so I am keenly aware of the issue there of the gun violence, which has been going on for quite some time. Um, the, the question for our community is, how do we address that? Well, I, mean, I, think, I think it can only be addressed um, by doing what I had previously mentioned. I think you have to start in an early age. Part of the gun culture is tied to drugs. Part of the drug culture is tied to lack of opportunity. So if you go through communities like Chicago where, you know, the killing is out of control. I went to school in Baltimore where the killing is out of control, Philadelphia. But if you also go through the cities, you will find cities that are resource starved, that have very few activities for young people, very few facilities for young people. And I'm not just talking about basketball courts. You know, public libraries are closing. When I grew up, as a kid, I lived in the public library. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have those type of resources in these communities. So what happens is you get gang influence, and they're grabbing these kids not in high school or middle school. They're grabbing them in elementary school. So the notion of carrying a gun becomes a badge of honor. The notion of committing a crime becomes a badge of honor. We've got to break that cycle. But the only people that can break that cycle are adults. And I think the only people that can really break that cycle in the African-American community are adult men. And that's the problem. We have a, a population of adult men that unfortunately, high incarceration rates, high joblessness rates, black men have really disappeared from these communities. You can go through communities and, and see, visibly see, the lack of black men. So, you know, I think in... in in acknowledging that, we also have to support young, single, black mothers. Because if there's no man in the household, and if there is a boy in the house, who is there to provide sort of the adult male figure? And I, and I take that very personally because I lost my dad at age 12. Mm -hmm. So I know what it's like for a single mom to struggle to try to raise boys. So I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about the need to rebuild the community from the bottom up, but understanding the specific areas where we have to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And on May 18th, you're going to be moderating a panel on the um, uh, Hip-Hop Summit. Tell us about that program. Well, three years ago, um, the Civic Association in my hometown, um, Hackensack, where I grew up, invited me to moderate a panel for this hip-hop forum. And I always say yes almost to anything that involves um, my hometown. So I went back, and, and most of the leadership of that civic association, uh, they are people who I went to school with. Um, and it was a fascinating discussion because it, it evolved not just about, you know, kids came there with the notion of wanting to know about the music industry. But the discussion involved more into leadership and what are they going to do as a generation. And that's where I'm going to steer the conversation again on May 18th because I think part of what we have to address, young people have a need to be identified today as something. Mm -hmm. The problem is the symbols that they see right. are so negative. Mm -hmm. So let's say you do want to get into the entertainment industry or to be a hip-hop artist. What's the path? And who are you emulating? 
Because if you turn on black entertainment television, you turn on TV One, the two black cable networks, there's so much negative imagery around music that somehow or another we have to teach our young people that there is more to that dream than what you see on television. And we had some entertainment lawyers that were part of the first panel who really tried to give these young people an honest point of view about the industry, about the challenges they will face, about the challenges of trying to be a positive artist in an industry that now promotes negativity, um, in an industry that really uh, degenerates women, um, an industry that really um, embarrasses the black community in a number of ways, but it doesn't have to be that way because there is a history in hip hop uh, that is strongly tied to community activism. And that's what I want to talk about. So I happen to have in my possession, and I don't even know who I got it from years ago, but years ago at the start of hip hop, Africa Bombada over in New York, one of the fathers of hip hop, they created, um, their movement was called the Zulu Nation, and they actually created a handbook for community participation for the Zulu Nation. I have that handbook. And when you read it, it's brilliant because it talks about hip-hop as a culture. It talks about your responsibility to the community. It talks about your responsibility as an artist. And so I've always stressed because I love music. I'm a big music aficionado. Yes, I know. <laughs> so, you know, I'm the guy with 6,000 songs on his iPod with well, almost 4,000 CDs at home. I, I hope I'm not telling the secret here, but when I remember when you first moved in your home, the first thing you got it before your security <laughs> yes. system was your sound system. Got that right. Yeah, I have to have my music. Because music to me, you know, I have a soundtrack to my life. And so I grew up listening to songs that were socially relevant. You know, the impressions, we're a winner, Marvin Gaye, what's going on? You know, James Brown, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. I have a personal soundtrack to my life. Mm -hmm. What's missing for these young people is a soundtrack. You know what? That's a very interesting point that you just raised because our daughter is about the same age. And, and, and my wife says to, Deb says to Bailey, our daughter, so you're not going to be able to play that song to your kid. You know, because you're going to be too ashamed. That's right. And, and as we were talking the other day, as, there's a book I like to talk about, As a Man Thinketh, in regards to what you feed yourself mm -hmm. intellectually. Um, it's, 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 I, I hope I'm able to attend. I hope I'm in town when mm -hmm. I can attend the summit because I like to understand the mentality of the degrading women, um, the disrespect to each other. Uh, I've asked my nephew, who is a uh, aspiring hip-hop singer. He's in his 20s, early 20s now. So why do you wear your pants like that? Yes. Help me understand, which causes you to have to shuffle your feet. Why? why? I, mean, I, I think it's just an utter lack of consciousness. And I, and I think the, unfor the unfortunate thing about being 54 is you can reflect back upon a very turbulent time in America. So growing up in the 60s and 70s, but the fortunate thing of being 54 is that you grew up in a turbulent time of America and you have some level of social consciousness. Our young people have no social consciousness. And um, as I addressed the audience two years ago, I said, you know, it's great for me to put on music that I can put on a song, whether it's Curtis Mayfield, whether it's Donny Hathaway, 
And immediately brings me back to a moment of significant social change. Mm-hmm. May not be a happy time, mm-hmm. could be a sad, but it brings me back to a specific scene mm-hmm. in my life that really means something. Mm-hmm. And that's to challenge the young people with their music. Mm-hmm. Who is crafting the soundtrack for positive change in this society? Wow. I mean, there are a few. You know, you have artists like Common. I mean, there, there are a mm-hmm. few people who, mm-hmm. but for the most part, when you look at the artists of the 60s and 70s, who, by the way, did not make a lot of money, most of them didn't control their art. Many of them led abusive lifestyles because of the pressure. You know, kids today who make it big, they don't have to go on tour 200 days out of the year. They don't have to sell, you know, 3 million records and visit every radio station and every nook and cranny. They're making millions from people seeing their music videos. They're making millions from iTunes. They don't have to put in the type of grunt work that artists did. But artists back then understood that their art had meaning. And you can almost go to any artist in the 60s or 70s, popular artists, and find in their catalog some socially relevant music. I don't care who it is, because they all understood that at the end of the day, it's about a movement. And speaking about that, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, it's timeless. It's, it's a, to this day, and it, the tragedy of that, that album was that it didn't receive a Grammy. I mean, that's the real tragedy. It is, it is one of the, it was the first thematic album. When you listen to that album, every song rolls into the next. And there's an ongoing theme about Mother Earth and protecting the environment and being good stewards of the environment. Mercy, mercy me. I mean, all of that. Uh, and I think what Marvin was able to do in a moment of brilliance, and we forget when that album was recorded, what our country was. We were at a point in our country where people drove down the highway and threw trash out the window. That's right. That's right. We remember those commercials with the Indians. Yes, with the teardrop. With the teardrop. That's right. And, and that's the other reason why I've always respected the Johnson. Walter, believe it or not, we are out of time. But I must have you back on the program after you have your hip-hop summit to get answers to several questions that I have, especially about the pants. Well, m- most definitely, and you, and you can tell De- Deb that I'm stealing her question, and I'll, I'll give that to, to the young people. You know what? And please let us know what they say. I will. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank our guest, the CEO and executive editor of NorthStarNews.com, Mr. Walter Fields. And um, that wraps it up for this weekend. Uh, remember, leadership begins with you. This is Darrell Gunter of leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM. Have a great weekend.